What this country needs is not a man or a woman. This country needs the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he needs us to be serious about him so that we can see this nation change. Let's all stand and pray together. And let's... And, We want revival. We want renewal. We want personal renewal. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for bringing us here. We love you. We want you to be preeminent in our lives. We ask now for revival. We ask for revival in this church, and we ask for an awakening in this community. And we ask that you would change hearts and change lives today. Pour forth your spirit and change us, Lord. Bring us revival and renewal personally. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So let me ask this question. Can we have revival today? Is it still possible? I mean, I was part of the Jesus movement. I remember, yes, I did have long hair. I had hair, <laughs> had a long mustache and all of that, and was able to go to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa where they had the circus tent and thousands were getting saved every week. And it was exciting to see what Jesus was doing. Can we have that again today? We're going to take a look at a couple of revivals that Israel experienced and I kind of see how that measures against us. Israel, for those of you who have studied, Uh, hopefully that's all of us, in its early history as a nation, they did something they weren't supposed to do. They went out of their way to violate the laws of God. If God said to do it, they wouldn't. If God said not do it, they would. They absolutely went out of their way. After King Solomon died, a new king came in and the nation split into two. You had a group that were moving north, they called it the northern kingdom, and you had another group that were in the south, that was Judah. The northern kingdom became a kingdom of idolaters. So if you were into idol worship, you moved north. If you loved the Lord, you moved south. And the northern kingdom had a series of horrible kings. And eventually, well, it didn't end well for them. The southern kingdom had a series of continually worsening kings, but every so often they'd have a revival. Every so often God would step in, his spirit would pour forth, and you'd see the nation change, and things would happen. But the northern kingdom wound up being destroyed due to their sin. At one point, the northern kingdom was very prosperous. People actually had two homes. They had two camels in every garage. I don't know what they had in their garage. I mean, you know, it's a few years back. But they still had a problem in that they rejected God. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 15 to 18, we find out the spiritual condition of the northern kingdom. And it doesn't start well. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings with which he warned them. doesn't sound like it's going to be a good story. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, 
They only had one out in the wilderness. They made two. Made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. That's basically they were worshipping sex. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. That's human sacrifice. And practiced divination and enchantments. And sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. So let's break that down a little bit and talk about it in modern terms. And it may sound like a country we live in today. They turned from God. The northern kingdom turned away. Didn't want anything to do with God. They became overly enamored with themselves. It was all about them. It wasn't about anybody else. They made sure that they had nice houses, nice clothes, nice camels, and a good job. They acted like those countries around them, but they didn't act like what God had called them to be or to do, which was to be separate, to be different. They literally became the source of all that God hates. They sacrificed their families so that they could meet their goals. You've got to pay for the bills on those two houses, you know. And, you know, camels eat a lot. I once had an opportunity to trade a car for 10 camels, and I turned it down. So, <laughs> You know they're coming when you smell them, not when you see them. <sighs> Back to this. They also did something that had never seen, been seen before. They killed their children in order to have a nice lifestyle today. They intentionally did things that were absolutely counter to what God commanded. If God said it, they wouldn't do it. God said not to do it, they did. They literally became the suppliers and enablers of everything God hates. Does that sound like someplace we're familiar with, unfortunately? With the northern kingdom, as a result of that sin, they wound up being destroyed, literally. The Assyrian army came in, and after a period of time, took the entire northern kingdom away into captivity. And I'm not talking down the street. They took them a thousand miles away. The Assyrians weren't nice people about it either. They had bad habits of like putting hooks in people's jaws and then dragging them behind their chariots. Uh, and it gets worse from there. They weren't good folks. And with that going on in the northern kingdom, imagine what the folks in the south were thinking. Now, they are watching all that happen. And their king during this period of time has been one who literally closed the doors of the temple and wouldn't let anybody worship there. And now you're in the southern kingdom and you just saw that happen. So we have a new king who comes in and his name's Hezekiah. And in 2 Chronicles 29, he does something very interesting. He loves the Lord. He leads the priests in cleansing the temple and restoring worship. He literally opens the doors of the temple for the first time in 30 years. And guess who's excited about it? All the priests. The priests are really into going back to what they've trained for. The Levites are very interested. The whole nation is involved in this. Of course, they just saw the northern kingdom go off into captivity. 
Hezekiah invited everybody who was left in the northern kingdom, come and worship with us. And they did. The people saw the danger of what had happened in the northern kingdom, and they returned to God. In fact, when Hezekiah makes an oath and swears allegiance to God, the whole nation does it with him. Verse 25 of Second Chronicles 30 All the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and the Levites and all the assembly that came from Israel, both the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those living in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Judah had worship restored. They didn't have enough priests. They had to start training Levites who did not normally have priestly duties to do priestly duties. They didn't have enough because there were so many people showing up to worship. Life changed. In fact, giving increased so much that the Levites who had second jobs had to quit those second jobs to build storehouses for all the stuff that was being brought in. It wasn't as bad as with Moses where there was so much giving going on he told them, stop. But it was just about that. They had to build storehouses, God's people, as a nation, turned back to him, and God blessed them. Because you see, Assyria wasn't done yet. They came back. They wanted to take Judah prisoner too. So they surround Jerusalem. And Hezekiah does something very interesting. He receives an ultimatum from the Assyrians. He takes it and goes to the temple, lays it out in front of the Lord and says, what do you want me to do? God says to him, don't worry about it, i got it handled. So God contacted his special operations division, and there's an angel apparently who works there. Um, And we see him in 2 Chronicles 32, 21. The Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of Assyria. In fact, this angel, who I envision is 6'8", and probably has tats on both arms and can choose nails for, he killed 135,000, that's what it says in Isaiah, 135,000 that evening. Before breakfast, they found the the bodies. Can you imagine? So much for your army, so much for the caption that's going on. God took care of it. God took care of it because the people had returned to God. Oh, and did it end well for the Assyrian king? says he returned to shame to his own land and when he entered the temple of his God some of his own children killed him there with the sword. God took care of the problem because the nation had returned back to God. Now, Hezekiah has a son. His name is Manasseh. Manasseh is bad news. He literally undid everything Hezekiah did. And Manasseh ruled for over 50 years. Took over when he was 12. First thing he did is he closed the temple Nope, let's leave it open. He sets up idol worship in the temple. And he sets up idols everywhere else. And in one generation, just one generation, this leader did something to the nation that had never happened before. Second Chronicles 33.9 Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Literally, In 50 years, Manasseh took Israel from worshiping the Lord to being worse than the nations that they kicked out when Joshua came in with the army. 
They outdid the people they kicked out because of their evil. In fact, they did more evil than they did. And they did it in one generation. In only one generation, Judah had become worse than the northern kingdom. So what do you think they got to look forward to now? God's people had turned away from God. Was it too late? Could God move? Could the nation, was the nation's heart such that they would turn back to the Lord? Or had they been so overwhelmed by the culture that Manasseh had encouraged that it was too late? Josiah, at the age of eight, became king. Josiah loved the Lord. He's the one who followed after the wonderful Manasseh. He loved the Lord. And those who were faithful were revived and renewed because of Josiah, but not the whole nation. Remember Hezekiah dedicated the temple and dedicated everybody and everybody participated? Josiah does the same thing by himself. No one repeats anything. He's all alone. They're there. Oh yeah, go ahead, Josiah, we're with you. No, they weren't. Their heart was still in the culture that Manasseh had encouraged. Josiah did something unusual. He decided that the temple, which nobody had been taking care of for over 50 years, needed to be repaired. And there were donations that were coming in for that, so he sent workers in to get the donations and to take care of the issue. So they go into the temple, and they found something amazing in the temple. They found God's Word. Imagine that. Finding the Torah in the temple. That would be like coming to church and saying, hey, I found a Bible in the church. That's exactly the same thing. They found God's Word. It says in 2 Chronicles 34, starting at verse 14, when they were bringing out the money, which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law given by Moses. Imagine that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There it is, in a scroll. wonder what it says. None of them knew. They hadn't read it. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Imagine that. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king saying, everything that was entrusted to your servants they're doing. They've also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord and they delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and the workmen. And moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shapin read from it in the presence of the king. Now this is the first time that Shapin had read the word. This is the first time the king heard the word. He is probably in his early 20s by now. And he's never heard the word before. He loves the Lord, but he doesn't know anything about God's word. And what's the king's reaction when he hears the words of the law? It says in the scriptures, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. That in that culture means, I repent. He's so overwhelmed with what he just heard that all he can do is tear his clothes. He heard the blessings God would do if they followed him. He heard the cursings they would receive if they didn't. And he knew what the country had been doing the last 50 years. He knew what they were in store for. Did you know that in most churches today, the full counsel of God, his word, is not taught? It's really amazing. You you talk to people about the teaching of God's Word, and we do it exegetically, which means we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Most people don't do it. 
You've heard Pastor Dan say, you can teach anything you want, just don't teach God's Word. That is the truth that you find in a lot of churches today. That's why we teach here at Calvary, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we do it because God is in His Word. In fact, Jesus tells us He's in the book, and we see Jesus in the Word of God. If you're struggling with a verse, or you're struggling with something in the Scripture and understanding it, put Jesus in it, you're about 80 to 90% of the way being done. And in John 14, he promises that if we ask, the author will show up and tell us what it's all about, the Holy Spirit. All we got to do is ask. But in God's Word, we find out how we should live, which is great, and we find out areas where we may be missing the mark. And my not favorite part, and how I need to be corrected. Now, it's nice when I figure it out after reading the Scripture. It's not nice when the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, because He knows how stubborn I am, uses a two-before between the eyes. (laughs) Ken, I need your attention. Do I have it? Sometimes it feels like that. But that's what it's all about. That's what the Scriptures are. It's to show us how we live, show us where we're missing the mark, and where we need to be corrected. The problem with the people in Josiah's Judah, they were following this culture that had been pushed by Manasseh, and it was literally too late for them. They couldn't change. They enjoyed the crazy things that Manasseh had them doing. They were pretty good idol worshipers. In fact, in Ezekiel, we see that Ezekiel's given a view of what's going on in the temple, and he finds out that there are priests in the temple worshiping the sun god. Not something that's supposed to be happening. Literally what had happened in Israel, they had gone so long that they had missed their Second Chronicles 7.14 moment. We'll talk about Second Chronicles 7.14, but literally Israel had gone beyond that point. Judah had gone beyond that point. They couldn't, it, was, it wasn't possible for them. In fact, remember the Assyrians? Their capital city is Nineveh. A guy by the name of Jonah went there, did a real simple message, 30 days and you're toast. That was after he got convinced by God that he needed to go in the first place. And guess what the people of Nineveh did? They repented. They repented, and the king was so determined to make sure God knew that they repented that he had everybody wear sackcloth, had everybody wear ashes, and even had them put ashes on all the animals. Hey, we want to make sure God knows what we're doing. Put ashes on the donkeys, put ashes on the cattle. We're all repenting. We're all into this. We don't want to be destroyed. And God didn't destroy them. They repented, much to the chagrin of Jonah, who wanted to see them all zapped. But was Israel past that point? Yeah, pretty much. They'd gone beyond the point where they could even repent. They didn't want to repent. Again, when Hezekiah made the oath to God, the people joined in. When Josiah did the same, he was all alone. No one joined in with him. In 2 Kings 23, starting at verse 26, Josiah sends a, someone to talk to the Lord and find out what his view of, it, of the current state of the nation is. And this is what he learned. The Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. That one generation, that one bad leader had done him in. 
The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said my name shall be there. Not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. Uh, By the way, during the reign of Josiah, there was a guy called as a prophet. His name is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Oh, and something else. 30 years after this revival, Ezekiel is sitting on the shore of a canal south of Babylon, and God is visiting him, calling him as a prophet. They'd already been captured, taken into captivity, and Jerusalem was still standing, but not for much longer. And Jeremiah is told this by the Lord in Jeremiah 7.16. As for you, do not pray for this people, do not lift up, cry, or pray for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. We're not at that point yet, but that's where Israel and Judah were. Now, would you say that we're living in the last days? Obviously, right? I mean, all the information about that is pretty overwhelmingly obvious. We just recently covered that in the biblical prophecy study. If you want a copy of the study, we've got it out at the media table. But we covered in there 12 specific signs as to why we're in the end of the age. And the first sign we find in Matthew 24, 7, it's the beginning of birth pangs, which is, and everything started with World War I. When you add World War I and II together, and the study goes into all the different aspects of that, you have the regathering of Israel, which is sign number two. The primary sign that we're in the end of the age is Israel has been regathered as a nation after 1,800, 1,900 years. And they're speaking Hebrew, which was pretty much a dead language too. Sign number three, a backwater country that up until World War I was a backwater country, is now a world power. It's the rise of Russia and her allies. And in fact, in Ezekiel 38, we see that there's going to be involved in a little battle that takes place. Uh, In Daniel chapter 12, we get the fourth sign, which is an increase in travel and knowledge. I'll show you what that means. When my granddad was born, the fastest way that you could get from point A to point B was a train doing 35 miles an hour. You couldn't go faster than 35 because everybody knew that if you went 65, the human body could not sustain that high speed, and you would die. Believe it or not, I've actually read those studies. It's crazy. But when my granddad passed away, men were walking on the moon in one generation. That's amazing. Daniel 12.4, yep. Increase in travel and knowledge. Knowledge is doubling now, according to IBM. Uh, They were saying 12 years, now it's 12 to 14 months. Everything we know doubles about every 14 months. No wonder I can't keep up. Uh, In James chapter 5, we get the fifth sign, which is capital and labor conflicts. That doesn't go on at all. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we find out that there are scoffers. That's a sign of the end of the age. Did you know that there are a lot of churches that do not believe that Jesus Christ is going to rapture his church prior to the tribulation? In fact, some of them don't believe he's going to rapture it at all. In fact, people have told me that I'm crazy because I believe that. I'm okay with that. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that uh, another sign is moral breakdown in society, and we know that's not happening today. (laughs) 
Then you have 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 10, which talks about a rise in lawlessness. Just read the paper. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 talks about a rise in occultism and the cults. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 talks about apostasy. That means a turning away from God to other things. And you add uh, number 11, which is the rise of the ecumenical church, uh, which is out of Revelation 17. You all of a sudden start looking at some things that have recently been coming out of Rome where uh, the head of one church is trying to gather together members of uh, Muslims, uh, members of Jewish, and members of Christian churches and saying we all have a common place to meet. I'm going like, no, we don't. Jesus Christ is, I mean, they, no, we don't. And then number 12 is one world government. And, and we see that in Daniel 2. That hasn't happened yet. However, if you read any of the literature involving foreign affairs and, and different types of things that are going on nationally, we're one disaster away from a one world economy and we're one disaster away from a one world government. My personal belief is, is that disaster is called the rapture of the church but we'll see. So where are we here at Calvary as with all of this going on? How are we doing? Um, by the way, Jesus in the book of Revelation talks about seven churches and he gives seven report cards to these seven churches. And these churches are a type, each one is a type of the church historically through the last 2,000 years. Some of, the, some of the churches get a report card that says, keep doing what you're doing. Some of them go, you need to return. And then there's a couple of churches that he says nothing good about. And one of those is the last day's church, the Laodicean church. Jesus did not say anything good about them. Uh, But that's what he says the norm for churches are going to be at the end of the age. And that's where we're at, the end of the age. So in Revelation 3, starting at verse 15, this is what Jesus says. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. That's not a good thing. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now, the New American Standard is very polite. The Greek isn't. The Greek basically translated says, I'm going to spew chunks. Violent vomiting. Jesus is not real happy with the last day's church. Now, all these churches existed at one time, but this is one particular church in Laodicea that was not living for the Lord, not living for much of anything. They were just there. And what was the issue? Well, they said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments, now notice... He says, buy white garments. That's a sign of salvation. He's actually saying, you got people in the church who aren't saved. Buy white garments. You need to get saved. You need to know Jesus. So that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Jesus' last word to that church is, Repent. He invites them to repent. That's for the church. Repentance, revival is for the church. If you don't know Jesus Christ, he invites you to believe. And if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're in the room today, all you have to do is confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
But for those of us who know Jesus, he's already been changing us. You don't have to be changed to become a believer. Jesus takes care of that. Once we are believers, he starts changing us. When I gave my life to Christ, I was doing everything I could to be the best pagan in the world. And then Jesus stopped that. I had done my best to do whatever I wanted to do. I even had a Bible, and I memorized some scripture, but I didn't believe any of it. But Jesus, for those of us who love him, he invites us to remember what it was like when we were first saved. When I was first saved, again, those verses that I had memorized, the reason why I memorized them is they had a a neighborhood Bible study that my mother made me go to. I did not want to go, but she made me go. And they said, if you memorize these 12 verses, we'll give you a Bible. And I looked at it and said, well, at least I'll get something out of this. So I memorized those 12 verses, and they gave me a Bible. Didn't believe a word of it. But when I gave my life to Jesus, guess what all I could remember was? Those 12 verses. And they were all in King James English, which didn't help me at all. But they kept rolling through my mind. Because I had memorized them. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit kept bringing them up, bringing them up, bringing them up. Just remember what, when you, know, you gave your life to Christ, you showed up in church, what's God going to do next? Where is he going to send me? What's he going to have me do? What, where am I going to go? How is God going to move in my life? I'm excited to be with the Lord. And then you meet some people at church who some aren't quite so excited. But for those of us who were actually involved with the Jesus movement, everybody was excited. And then we got older. And it's just kind of like, well, things get in the way. Um, little things. that just Well, anyway. Jesus invites us to remember what it was like when we first came to him. His invitation is in 2 Chronicles 7.14. I talked about Israel having missed their 2 Chronicles 7.14 moment. And this is what was promised to Israel when Solomon dedicated the temple, but it still holds today. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Simple. He's not talking to people who aren't in the church. He's talking, or who, people who aren't Jewish. He's talking to those who love him already and know him. But what's the problem? Why don't we see revival happening today? Satan's lied to us. And he's gotten us to believe that it's inconvenient to have revival. He's gotten us to believe that it can't happen. And and Satan wants us to believe that. As a church, do we need this? What are are the signs that we have here that do we need revival or, or is everything okay? Let's take a look at giving. There are 1,631 families that call this church home. 43% of those families last year gave Nothing. Not a dime. 40% of those families gave a tip. 6% gave a little more than a tip, and 11% tithed. So basically what's going on here is being supported by 17% of the folks who call this their church home. What's the problem? Well, we've been listening to Satan, and Satan has us believing that it's inconvenient to us for God to be in control of our finances. I get it. I used to be there. 
I didn't want to give uh, 10% because I had to make a car payment. That car was always breaking down. Didn't know what was wrong with it. Then I trusted the Lord, and all of a sudden I began to realize that it was being longer and longer before the car would break down. God was taking care of it. Now I'd never go back. How about time? How are we doing there? Well, you know we need people to serve. You heard that. We were talking about needing folks to serve. Of the 1,631 families, 10% do. 90% don't. We have needs in virtually every area. But Satan has convinced us that it's inconvenient for us to give our time to the Lord. We've got things to do. You know, I mean, I've got, I've got, I've got to go to work. I've got to, I, I get that. I understand. But Jesus died on the cross for us and gave us everything. How about studying God's Word? How are we doing there? 1,631 families call Calvary their church home, but less than half show up on a Sunday. Less than half. How about Wednesdays? How many show up for Bible study? We do a Bible study on Wednesday. 3%. We don't have child care, by the way, on Wednesdays because we don't even have enough people to do child care on Sundays. Men's ministry, another place where we teach the Word. 2.5% of all the men in this church actually show up. Growth groups. We heard that we're getting ready to start doing growth groups again. You would think, okay, that's where all the Bible study is taking place, right? Well, you're correct. It's 20%. Most of the folks who make this their church home have listened to Satan's lie, and it's just inconvenient to study God's Word. i got other things going on. How about holiness? How are we doing there? Are we guarding our eyes, or do we indulge in everything the culture has? I struggle with this, not so much the, the eyes, but as soon as somebody pulls in front of me on I-95, I wish I had a little switch on the dash of my car that said, laser or death ray. <laughs> and then I find myself, Lord, uh, forgive me. Um, help them to get to wherever they're going before they kill someone, especially me. But, I mean, it, we all struggle with this. It's not something that's just one person or a group. It's, it's all of us. Little things get in the way all the time. I mean, we think that maybe it's a big sin that's causing it. No, it's not. It's little things. It's little things that we should be doing that we aren't doing, little things that we could be doing that it's just, it's, it, it's just, in, it's, we listen to Satan. And Satan, again, tells us it's inconvenient to make Jesus number one on a list of one. It just is. Why no revival? That's why. We've listened to a lie. Satan does not want us to be effective at all. He wants to do anything he can to keep us from being effective. When what we need is a move of the Holy Spirit. We need him energizing and enabling us and allowing him to lead us and direct us in what it is that he wants us to do. Literally, we need to turn off the television and the radio and pick up our Bibles. What this country needs is not a man or a woman to lead it out of the problems we've made for ourselves. What we need is Jesus, pure and simple. That's what we need. Again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Our opportunity to do this 
is right now. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Our opportunity is right now. Right now. Jesus doesn't say if you do this, if you do that. He just says if you humble yourselves, that's it. It's right now. All we have to do is humble ourselves. God's people, his church, those in this place who follow Jesus, all we got to do is pray, seek, and turn. That's it. And then we can see God do miracles in our society. We can see him do miracles around us and start seeing things change in this community. We need this. And we need it right now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the warning. Thank you for showing us the nation of Israel and where they went and how we can prevent that. We want, we need revival. Personal revival. We want to be impacted individually. I want to be impacted individually, Lord. I want you more than anything. We all want that, Lord. We want to be enabled and empowered with your spirit. Your word says all we have to do is humble ourselves. That's hard for us to do, Lord. If, if anyone wants to agree with me, all we have to do is just stand up. That, we'll do that as our means of humbling ourselves. So just stand. Uh, if, if you're agreeing with the fact that we need revival and that you need revival, just stand. And let's pray together. Lord, you see all of us standing, all of us saying we need you, we need a touch of the Spirit, we need, we need you to change us. We want you more than anything else. We want personal revival. We want to be empowered and enabled with the Holy Spirit. Enable us and empower us right now, Lord, so that we would be living by the Spirit and be Spirit-led in everything that we do. Show us where we're making the mistakes. Help us not to make them anymore. And Lord, we just repent. We come to you and we love you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And help us to go forth from this place in your power and in your might. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.